You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Today's teaching text is from Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, friends. All right, we're feeling good. Uh, I'm just move this. Hey, bud. Sorry. Oh, crap, we're just making moves, friends. Uh, all right. There's a um, this picture, this graph I came across a few months ago that has really kind of floored me. Um, well, actually, you see it up here. So this is a, a timeline for those of you who are uh, not in the room or listening afterwards. It's a picture of a timeline from like 1700s all the way through the present. And it's pretty empty for the most part except for these dots, and each of those dots represents one year. And so there's 37 dots across this 245-year timeline. What's wild about this is that each one of those dots represents a year when our country wasn't at war. Thirty-seven years out of 245, we've been at war. You may not even realize it, but we've actually been at war for the last two decades. There are people who now can like drink alcohol and are like full-blown adults who've never known a country without war. And this is kind of like weird, right? Because there are times, I think, for most of us where this feels like really true. Like if you remember 9-11 and you remember, like I remember being a sophomore in high school and I remember watching the towers fall and I remember the news and, and, and I remember the declaration of war on terror and I remember troops going out and I remember turning like 16 and I don't know, I'm like, are they going to bring back a draft? Like, am I going to have to go to war, right? And it was so visceral that we were at war. And then, you know, the years pass, and you don't really hear much about it on the news anymore. 
And it's not really like a daily reality for most of us. And so you're tempted to just forget that it's even happening. And maybe like, you know, recently there's been, you know, renewed talks about ending the war and bringing home soldiers. And it kind of brings back like, oh yeah, I guess we are at war. I guess that never really did end. And so sometimes for some of us, it's just flashes. And for others of us, though, it's, that would be a luxury, right? For those who have family in war, have served themselves, who know very well the daily reminder of that empty spot in the bed that we are very much at war, that someone's gone. For those, for those of us around us, it's to forget we're at war is, um, yeah, it's a real privilege. It's this concept of like continual war and how that plays on the mind and the body that in essence is a lot of what Paul is undergirding what Paul is writing in Ephesians when you think about it, right? When Paul talks about the Christian life, he does so almost in this context as if we were in this continual war. He actually uses a lot of war language throughout his letters. You can look in like Philippians uh, 2.25 and Philemon verse 2, where Paul refers to fellow Christians as fellow soldiers in this fight. And then in his letter to Timothy, 2 uh, 2 Timothy 2 and 3, he says this, he he writes to Timothy, he says, join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. And when we come into Ephesians and he talks about where we are now, this full armor of God, Paul does so with kind of the sense of that, hey, daily you have to put on the full armor of God because we are in a continual war. And maybe, again, for some of us, that continual war, it comes and goes. Others of us, we know that we are daily fighting. We're daily up against it. But it's different, right? Because war that we're talking about against flesh and blood, well, that is, it's heavy. And it's easy sometimes even to forget that, though there are like real lives, people that, are gone, no longer with us because of this war. But a spiritual war, that's kind of tricky, right? Because a spiritual war, you can't see it. Like, it's kind of like what we are now. Our country is in a war on terror. But what is terror? Like, how do you kill terror? How do you make terror submit? I don't really know. How do you get the devil to submit? Paul, again, talks about this in our passage, right? So in verse 12, he says, or for verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This continual war that we're in is not against some like your neighbor across the streets. 
even though they just continually play music. It's not even against that person at work that drives you up the wall or that family member that just can't get right. No, that's, it feels like the war, but actually that's just the symptom. The real war is underneath it all. It's in this like breaking of the world itself, in this, this evil, this force that is sowing destruction and reaping chaos. It's just kind of in the air and everywhere. That's the war we're up against. And the testimony of scripture says this is all headed by an actual agent of force, the devil, our adversary. Peter writes uh, in 1 Peter 5 and 8, be alert and of sober mind. Again, this kind of like military language, like always on guard or watchman, be alert. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the faith. So again, we have this war language. Our enemy, be alert. He's coming for you. I find it really interesting when you look at Ephesians 6 and there is this war language. But the remedy to the war that we're fighting, the tools that we come to this war in, are not the tools of our adversary. Like when we think about war, it's not about like arming yourself and making sure you keep that bat under the bed. No, the, the readiness for this war are things like righteousness and truth and faith the gospel. And actually, even the war that we're, the, the armor that we're wearing is borrowed armor. It's not even custom fitted to us. It's not our armor. This is the armor of God. It belongs to him. And most of that armor is just for defense, if you think about it. All the things that name, they're all defensive instruments except for one. And even that one, the, the, the sword of the spirit, even that isn't based on our effectiveness or might. Like it doesn't say battle with the sword of right living. Right? Or the spear of truth telling. Let me tell you how it really is. Paul doesn't say bring to this constant battle the gun of perfect beliefs. When's the last time you pulled that one out? Let me tell you why you're wrong. I've fired a few of those. No, these aren't our weapons. This isn't the war that we fight. Again, the underlying subtext of Ephesians 6 and the underlying testimony of Scripture for people that are in our continual war against not flesh and blood, but evils and principalities, is that, the underlying subtext, is that this is God's fight. This is his war and his armor. He's doing it. He's fighting the battle, and we're holding on the best we can, waiting for the orange slices afterwards. Like, he's doing it. As we're going through our series, Armor of God, today, we're unpacking the shield of faith. And the question we're going to talk about is, how can faith aid us as we endure the relentless attacks 
of an enemy desperate to see us undone. How does faith act as a shield? And how does a shield of faith help us make it through life? If you remember when we talked about in the very first week, that when Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, this is really kind of his magnum opus. He is, a, a, he is really in part teaching people what it means to actually live like a follower of Jesus. And the book is essentially broken down into orthodoxy, what we should know, and orthopraxy, what we should do. And these two are commingled. We have to be hearers of the word and doers of the word, right? And so in the end, as he's wrapping up in Ephesians 6, he gives us this analogy of the armor of God and he commends us to put on the shield of faith. But what does that mean? And what does it look like? So I'm from South Carolina uh, and uh, I have always been... um, I guess the, the euphemistic term is husky. Uh, uh, actually, in the South, uh, we have this term uh, for, for people of my stature. Uh, it's called hoss. Uh, and uh, I, I just, I'm not even going to tell you what I thought it meant. But uh, it turns out I looked it up, and it means like it, it's some basically southern breakdown of the word horse, you know, so we tried to say horse, and it came out hoss, and, uh, and so now we just call, we would say, that's the boy's a hoss, so come here, that's a, hey, hoss, come here, and what it means is just signifying like a horse is something that's a big and stable, powerful thing that's good for working, it's good for doing something, so I was a hoss all my life, right, but think about being uh, uh, my stature in the South, uh, is there is this, um, there is a societal kind of assumption that you should play football. Like that's what you're made for. You know, like don't let all that go to waste. Go out of there on the field and hit something. And the thing about football is when they sign you up for my size, they never sign you up for like the nice positions. You know? <laughs> they never go, you know what? Look at you. You know, let's put you on the red jersey that no one can hit and let's make you the quarterback. Or you know what? Let's make you the kicker. I want you to go over on the sidelines and just like, dally around and pick daffodils and maybe kick a football every time. No, no. What they tell people like me is they line me up against somebody else like me and they say, why don't y'all hit each other? And then we'll let the other boys like throw and run, right? And I didn't want to do that because I don't like being hit. It's just not in my DNA. But there are people, there are plenty of people from where I come from who look like I do that do like it. They take joy in being that like lineman. And I think part of that joy is because even if you're not familiar with how football, which I mean, we live in America, it's kind of hard, but basically the lineman serves as a shield. And people take great pride in being able to be this kind of shield for the quarterback as he's throwing the football or for the running back as he's running. And there's this dance between these two positions, right? Because you have these smaller, sometimes frailer bodies, right? And the, the way that they get to do what they can do is because they have this shield, but this shield is really dependent upon faith, right? Because when you're running back and somebody hands you this ball and they tell you to go like run, but there are people that are trying to take your head off, right? The only reason if you're saying that 
you would do that is if they maybe tell you, we'll put this really big guy in front of you to absorb all the hits and no one should hit you, right? And so you have faith in this shield and this person that's in front of you, that they're going to block all the people that are trying to hurt you. And then you go, okay, and then I get all the glory because I get to run in the touchdowns and that guy never does, right? It's a good trade. All right, I'll take that trade. And so this game is really predicated on this game of faith and showing up that that guy, that big guy who's keeping that other big guy from me knows where he's supposed to be and he's going to be there and he's going to be effective at what he's called to do. You don't know that, but you hope for that and you believe in that and so you run or you drop back to throw. Paul, uh, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews describes this in chapter 11 this way. He says, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is the confidence that it's going to work out. It's a conviction, really. It's like this thing in your bones. You are convinced that this is going to be okay. And you are assured, even though there's nothing giving you the proper feedback to say that it is. You're kind of just trusting. You are trusting. The writer of Hebrews is writing, uh, Hebrews was written probably about 30, 40 years after Jesus' death. And the book is written to Jews who were experiencing increasingly uh, more and more persecution, right? Um, Their properties were being seized. They were being put to death. Uh, It was not, it wasn't a nice time. Being a Christian wasn't exactly, um, you know, the club you wanted to be a part of. And so a lot of these first century Jews were tempted to turn back. They had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they had accepted the testimony of his followers that he had come out of that grave. And they had even seen evidence of his movement in the world. And yet, though, they were constantly being bombarded with persecution, both large and small. And so there was this temptation to run. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, we have to to keep moving forward. If you go back, I don't have it up here, but if you can go back into Hebrews 10, just before this verse we just read, the writer of Hebrews is telling them, I know that your houses have been stolen. I know your, your, your property has been taken. I know that some of you have been put to death. But you have to persevere. You have to keep pushing forward because there is an everlasting prize. He says, I know that some of you get it. You have joy when they take your property because you know you have a possession they can never take. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to give us this hall of faith, as we call it. Uh, This list and this character, the attributes all throughout chapter 11 of Hebrews of Jewish uh, members of old who have have been uh, paragons of faith throughout the scriptures. And one of them he mentions in this little footnote is King David, verse 32. He says, I don't even have time to talk about the faith of David and how it sustained him. But I actually do have time, so we're going to talk 
a little bit about it. Because there's a story that I just really love that I think really illustrates what it means when we talk about the shield of faith and what it means to allow the shield of faith to serve as an armor in this continual war that we find ourselves in. So, 2 Samuel 5. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to break it down. But as I'm reading it, I want you to just, just listen and take note of the series of events that happen. In particular, I want you to take note of David and what he does, okay? Uh, so, set the scene. Uh, at this point, uh, the nation of Israel was kind of divided in two parts. They were fractured. There was a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. David has been recently appointed king, and he has united all of Israel as like one nation, right? But they still have these enemies that they're surrounded by. And this is what happens shortly after David is anointed king. So picking up in verse 17, 2 Samuel 5, it says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And so David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. And he said, As the waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Verse 22. Once more, the, Philippines, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. And as soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. There's a couple of things I find so fascinating about this little encounter and resonates with me so much. The first is this. <laughs> Breakthroughs and come-ups often precede slip-ups and impediments. Breakthroughs and come-ups often precede slip-ups and impediments. And by that, what I mean is, isn't it always when you've kind of just like, things are good, You've made it through one trial. You've like, you know, you're finally in a place where you feel good about dating Jesus and being your own person. You know, you're happy, you're content. And then that person likes that picture, four scrolls down on your Instagram. Because you know, they know that you know. And it puts you right back in that toxic relationship that you've been trying to avoid, Right? You were doing so good, and then you find yourself right back in it. Or you've been eating healthier, and you're feeling better, right? You've been kind of going to the gym. You can get out now, maybe wear your mask a little less, and you did some exercise, and then you're feeling great, and then someone posts that picture, and you realize that COVID-5 was maybe a COVID-20, and you're just like, you know what, what's the point? And you end up back with those Oreos sitting on the couch. You're just disappointed. It's like always right after you've had some success that things are good, there comes this attack in this wave as if someone 
is waiting, trying to steal your joy. As if something, some force is waiting to bring you back down. You thought that you could be loved, but see, this one fell apart too. You thought you were going to have enough money, but here comes this mysterious bill. David becomes king, and what happens? Right after he becomes king, the enemy attacks. And it says they heard, and that's when they attacked. On the brief of this good news, this is actually a military strategy that we practice today in times of transition. That's when the militaries usually come in. Everyone's distracted. You're celebrating a new, you know, new administration. Perfect time to strike when you're off your game. And this is kind of interesting, too, because pay attention. Remember, I asked you to think about the series of events. So David has become kings. The Philistines attack in this valley, the Valley of Rephaim, and they're defeated. And then what happens the next verse? They attack again in the same valley. Like it just keeps coming back. It's the same thing over and over. And that's because the devil is effective, but is not that creative. He's effective, but he's not that creative. You can almost see it coming. Like you know what's going to trip you up before it happens, right? And yet you still fall for this. Like Paul talks about, I do what I want. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. And maybe the first time, maybe the first time you succeed. Remember the first time. Take a look at this. So in verse 19, they're attacking the first time, and David says, like a good king of God's people, I'm going to go to God and ask him what he will have me to do. And so God tells him, and he does it, there's success. Then it happens again. And I don't know about you, but there's a temptation, if it worked once, it'll probably work twice. And I kind of just give a go of it. I got this. No need. And yet David, again, Inquires of the Lord, it says. Verse 23, verse 22, they attack again. Same enemy, same place, same task. Attacked again. And David doesn't just rush out and do what he did last time. But he goes to God. And what happens? This time God's like, no, I'm not doing it the same way. There's a, this concept called a core lie. And I think the reason why the devil can get away with being so effective or not being that creative is because oftentimes we spend so much time fighting the symptom and the way brokenness is expressing itself through our lives. Through our lives. So maybe it's like, okay, pornography, right? But maybe you get a handle on pornography and then it expresses itself through, you know, your physical relationships. Maybe it expresses itself through overeating. It kind of just changes. It's like a bad sitcom. It swaps out the cast, but the, the plot's still the same because there's oftentimes what the real issue is. It's a core lie that we have come to believe about ourselves or about God, oftentimes from childhood, and we hold these lies in our hearts and we build walls around them. And those lies tell you that the truth is you can never really be loved. 
or the core lie is you'll never actually be good enough. Or the core lie is like, God actually hates you. And we believe these lies. And then they come out in our relationships with others. They come out in our relationship with God. They come out in our relationship with ourselves. And it's these beliefs that are buried down deep. And we spend so much time working on the symptom that we never actually get to the lie. Because if we were to find the lie, well, then we can invite the truth of God into that lie. And we could find some freedom. So the devil keeps us busy with switching out names, switching out circumstances. David circumvents that by continually relying on God. Because David understood that the battle that he was called to fight as the king of Israel wasn't his battle. And so twice in the face of the same thing, he doesn't lean on his own understanding, but in all his ways he acknowledges him. And what does God do? Direct his path. And he does it through different ways because God sees the whole battlefield. It's like he has a plan. If you were here last week, Jackie discussed this about the readiness of the gospel, the shoes fit with the readiness of the gospel, being rooted in this idea of God having this unfurling plan that the spance of history is heading somewhere. The belief that underpins the shield of faith and actually all of the armor of God is this, that, if, that the belief is that if God's got us, then we're going to be all right. That this is his plan, that he's doing something. If we would but trust, trust and obey. The people in Hebrews 11, I encourage you to go this week, just spend time reading some of the stories of why people are in there. The people in the hall of faith were convinced of that. David in the face of an enemy, a formidable enemy, with his very life on the line and those lives he had been entrusted with, he was convinced of this truth, that God has an unfurling plan, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So when we talk about the shield of faith, when we believe when we are convinced in what we hope for, that we are not alone, and that there is a God who stands beside us. And we are assured, even though we can't physically see him, but we are assured nonetheless that he is moving on our behalf. And we are convinced and assured of that. When we have faith in God, it becomes a shield that allows us to take on the fiery arrows of the evil one. It allows us to make it through two years of COVID and however many more months to come. 
that allows us to make it through that family situation, that lack of job, that thing that's been killing you, and you keep trying in and of your own power to fight this battle. Band's going to come back up. We're going to move to the invitation. Uh, Ephesians 6.18, I wish I'd put it up there, but right after the army of God, as Paul is closing out his letter, he gives this exhortation after he says, arm yourselves with God, and he says this, and pray. So put on the armor of God, and once you have on the armor, here's what you do. Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. With this in mind, here's that language again, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. And our prayer team's going to come up here so we have people ready to pray with you. And then, you know who you came with. We have the ability as a priesthood of all believers to pray and minister to one another. But in a second, I want us to move to an invitation. And there's three things. As I was sitting with the Lord, I really think that he wants to do today. We're going to pray for deliverance from the battle you've been fighting. I know somebody's in here has been fighting a battle. And it's, you, you, you like that graph, you're like, oh, that's my life. I probably had 37 minutes apiece. I'm going to pray that the Lord can come and deliver you from that battle. We're going to put up that shield of faith. And then we're going to pray for vision and understanding for the core lie that keeps expressing itself. Because maybe for you, it hasn't been a constant battle, but every now and then that core lie keeps creeping up and expressing itself in some idiosyncrasy, some brokenness. You haven't ever really been able to put your name or a name to it or describe it or really pinpoint it. So we're going to pray today that God will show you the vision. What is the core lie that you've believed? And how can we invite the gospel into it to learn the truth? And the last thing I want us to pray Healing from the wounds you've suffered. You've been in a fight. And though God was fighting it, you've got some scars to show it. I want to pray for healing today. Deliverance, vision, healing. I believe I have the faith that God can do it. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I've needed it. I need it. So together, let's go before our Father. Let's go before the King. Let's pray for one another and bear one another. And of course, anything else is not in those three. You can always come. You can always pray. We can pray for anything and everything. So prayer team's going to come up. We're going to stand up. We're going to give worship to God.
because the battle is his and it's already won. There's going to be these rugs down here. There's nothing magical about them. It's just a place we've carved out where you can come and just do with your bodies what your heart needs to do. Like maybe you just need to lay before the king of the universe and say, I need you to pick me up. Maybe you just need to kneel before him and say, I believe that you will fight my battles. Come and take up space. There's space for you. And then we'll receive and give prayer. In a little bit, Gemma will come up and lead us to the table. So why don't we stand? I'm going to pray for us. And I just want to say that if God's got a plan, then maybe today was written into it for you. So don't let today pass. Don't let today pass. Father, for healing from the wounds we've been carrying, I pray. For vision for the lies we've been believing and telling, I pray. For surrender, deliverance from the battles we've been constantly trying to fight in and of our own strength, I pray. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move and invite us into something different, Lord. Would invite us into deliverance, invite us into healing, invite us to see ourselves as you see us, Lord. So would you move, Holy Spirit? We know you are here, but we're not content with just your presence. We demand your activity. Demand you to move, to stir up our affections, that we will confess like those early Christians did, our hearts not burn within us. So lead us into invitation. Lead us into worship. Lead us into the newness of life, we pray. Amen.